We have three scripture readings this morning, but before uh, we get into those, I just want to say thank you to everyone who just so faithfully and generously supports the work of this church and the ministry that goes out from this place. We feel it as a church staff, uh, whether that support is financially or through volunteers, um, and it's the reason we can do such incredible work like partnering um, with Catholic Community Services and so many others in this place. So thank you for that. And uh, let's hear the word of the Lord together this morning. Our first verse comes from the book of Psalms. This is Psalm 133, verse 1. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Our second reading is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 33 to 34. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the native born among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And our last verse is from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, from chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Um, there are just a, a couple of birthdays from kids that I want to mention uh, today is a, a couple of birthdays. I know I can't mention everybody's birthday all the time, I don't think, but there is a little adage that I l choose to live by, which is do for one what you cannot do for everyone. And so I want to I wish a happy birthday to Asher Allen and Miley O'Neill this morning. Happy birthday, you guys. I don't even know that you're in here, but hopefully uh, we, you will hear that uh, in passing. <laughs> Love it. The other day I was on a website um, in the morning, uh, which I typically do not do, but it was an interesting website, kind of a peculiar website called ediplomat.com. And, uh, and I, was, uh, I found this little page on the website that is about cultural etiquette and rules of hospitality for all these different nations. And so you can choose your country that you're going to go visit and travel to, and uh, you can um, learn all about the things that are kind of normative in that culture. So for example, if you were to go to say a place called the United States of America and you were going to visit an American, here are some things that you might want to keep in mind before you visit. American greetings are generally quite informal. This is not intended to show lack of respect, but rather a manifestation of the American belief that everyone is equal. At least we like to say that. Uh, and then, uh, how about this? The only proper answers to the greetings, how do you do, how are you, or how are you doing, are fine, great, or very well, thank you. This is not a request for information about your well-being. <laughs> it is simply a pleasantry. <laughs> See you later is just an expression. People say this even if they never plan to see you again. <laughs> when saying goodbye, Americans may say, we'll have to get together or let's do lunch. 
This is simply a friendly gesture. Unless your American colleague specifies a time and date, don't expect an invitation. <laughs> if you want to have lunch, you should take the initiative to schedule it. It's good to include some information uh, about a person you're introducing. For example, Susan Olson, I'd like you to meet John Harmon. He designed the brochure for this campaign. Use professional titles when you're introducing people to each other. For example, Judge Susan Olson, meet Dr. John Harmon. If you're introducing yourself, do not use your professional title. <laughs> Handshakes are usually brief. Light handshakes are considered distasteful. Use a firm grip. No dead fish, thank you. Eye contact is important when shaking someone's hand. Keep your distance when conversing. If an American feels you are standing too close, he or she may step back without even realizing it. People who like to touch really like touching, and people who do not like to touch really dislike being touched. You will need to watch your colleagues for clues on what they are comfortable with. Americans smile a great deal, even at strangers. They like to have their smiles returned. Some Americans are known as backslappers. They give others a light slap on the back to show friendship. Do not be late for a dinner party. Arrive within five to 15 minutes after the time on the invitation. Never arrive before the time you were invited. If you're going to be more than 15 minutes late, phone your host and apologize. Never begin eating until everyone is, uh, and your hosts have begun, everyone is served and your hosts have begun. Offer food or drink to others before helping yourself. Uh, serve the women at the table first. If offered a second helping of food, feel free to take what you like. Americans like people to eat a lot. <laughs> if an invitation reads 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., leave very close to the ending time stated. Americans tend to eat more quickly than people from other countries. Dining in the United States is seldom the long lingering event it is in much of the world. The point for Americans is more often to eat rather than to socialize. Well, now that we've learned so much about hospitality and American culture, keep in mind that we've learned absolutely nothing about biblical hospitality as of yet. In America, we tend to equate hospitality with parties and social gatherings or even luxurious vacation resorts and expensive restaurants. To us, hospitality is an industry more than it is a practice. And when you say hospitality to an American, Martha Stewart comes to mind before Jesus of Nazareth. But the ancient Christians considered hospitality not a degree, like a bachelor's degree you can earn that will prepare you to work in the industry, but a virtue, an expression of the love of neighbor. It was fundamental to our identity of being a person of the way. The followers of Jesus, before they were called Christians, were called followers of the way. And it was their hospitality that, that was their reputation. They were known for it. Uh, early Christians insisted that Jesus' ethics were based around welcoming the stranger. There were a lot of contested ideas in the early church, from the doctrine of the Trinity to the nature of Jesus Christ. But one thing that the fathers and mothers were all unanimous about was that hospitality was the primary Christian virtue. 
We see this in the life of Jesus. He exampled it himself when he fed the the multitudes, a a feeding that was uh, recorded six times in four gospels. So two feedings in two gospels and four feedings in four gospels. We see it when he washed his disciples' feet and gave them a demonstration of hospitality when he was the host of the Last Supper and when he gave them this new commandment. Not only did Jesus teach his disciples to extend hospitality to others, he also taught them to receive hospitality from others because you cannot be a good host unless you've had the experience of being in need of hospitality and being a guest. And so he sent them out in pairs, two by two, and commanded them to receive the hospitality of the people that he would visit. And then he also offered very harsh words for any who would refuse hospitality. Take a look at what he says in Matthew chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples before sending them out. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. These are harsh words that Jesus gives to those who would refuse hospitality to weary travelers. Paul knew this, this value of Jesus, and so he writes in his letter to the church in Rome, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers, extend hospitality to strangers. And then the writer of Hebrews uses the same word and actually takes it a step further in saying, let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And that is a wonderful image that the writer of Hebrews gives us, to imagine that the stranger who we would encounter along the way is actually somebody who's made in the image of God, who very well could be sent by God as an angel unaware. And so this attentiveness to this calling. I want to unpack this phrase, this phrase, extend hospitality to strangers. There's a Greek, it's one Greek word, and it's a really powerful, important word in the New Testament. And the word is philoxenia. It's a compound word, and uh, it means ho- extend hospitality to strangers. Um, you've heard of the phrase or the word Philadelphia, our wonderful historic city in Pennsylvania. Some of you have been to Philadelphia, and you might know that Philadelphia. Philadelphia means love of brother. Phileo means love. Delphi means brother or sister or kin. Those who are like you, those who are close to you, your family. This comes very natural, very easy. The love of those who are like you. And you might say, well, you've never met my family before. Um, And you're right, but at least it's somewhat obligatory to, to love those who are like you. Then there's an opposite word, which is, you know this word, xenophobia. Xenos, which is strange, or the stranger, foreign, alien, and phobos is fear. And so that comes very natural and very easy, right? So the love of those who are like us is, is very common and natural. The fear of those who are different from us very common and natural, but the New Testament witness calls us to something entirely different, which is philoxenia, which is the love of stranger, to love those 
who are different. It's an amazing concept. It's interesting when you think about Jesus, though he was one who taught and practiced and exampled this kind of hospitality to strangers and to receive hospitality, he was one who was treated with inhospitality from even before he was born all the way through to his death. You might remember when his family traveled to Bethlehem, there was no room for him in the inn, and so he was born in a feeding trough in a stable. During his adult life, he said things like, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You might remember when Jesus was invited to Simon the Pharisee's house for a dinner gathering, and there was a a woman, a sinful woman, as was her reputation, who crashed the party, and Jesus says this to the host, Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. He's flipped the definition of hospitality. She is the one who is the real host because she has expressed her love and her pouring herself out. Hospitality begins in the heart as an expression of love and gratitude. Jesus did not invent this practice. It didn't, it wasn't born with him. He got it from his own scriptures in the Torah, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, not to mention the book of Ruth and the Psalms and elsewhere. But take a look again at this teaching from the Torah that Jesus would have followed. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. This is instruction for the people of God as they're being established in the promised land that God is giving them. And God is saying, you, I'm giving you this land, don't hoard it, because all the people of the earth are my children. So the alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt, I and the Lord your God. And throughout the centuries, the church of Jesus, the Christian church, has applied this calling in various places, many places. We've applied it to migrants traveling through. It's been applied to orphans and widows. It's been applied to prisoners. It's been applied to the unborn. This is what the people of, way, of the way were known for in the first several hundred years, up through the writing of St. Augustine in the fifth century, all the early Christian writers extol this value of hospitality. Take a look at what Ambrose said in the fourth century. He was a preacher, an early father of Milan. He said, love hospitality whereby holy Abraham found favor, favor and received Christ as his guest. You too can receive angels if you offer hospitality to strangers. Taking that passage from Hebrews. Um, and then in the first century, there is this um, critic, a pagan critic of Christianity by the name of Lucian. I find that a little bit unfortunate because Lucian happens to be my middle name. Uh, who knew? But nonetheless, this person said, um, speaking of the lavish hospitality that the Christians showed to a local prisoner. He said the efficiency of Christian, the, the Christians show whenever matters of community interest like this happen is unbelievable. They literally spare nothing. 
And so from the Apostle Paul to Ambrose to pagan reporters practicing hospitality equaled Christianity. When you think of Christianity today, do you think hospitality? Because that's what you would have thought of in the first 500 years of the church's expansion. Church historian Diana Butler Bass, she said this, only ordinary Christians open their homes as house churches that engaged a radical form of welcome. Domestic hospitality wasn't about church teas or dinner parties. It meant offering shelter for widows and orphans, providing rooms for itinerant missionaries and preachers, making meals for the poor, and hosting family funeral banquets and other ritual meals. And so these practices uh, extended throughout the Roman Empire in the first centuries. And then when, it be when Christianity became legalized in the Roman Empire, pastors and bishops organized hospitality as an institutional function, became institutionalized as part of the church. There was a famine in 368 AD in Cappadocia that uh, threatened um, to, to you know, kill many people for, for, hung, for hunger. And Gregory of Nyssa was an early church father. His brother was a bishop by the name of Basil. And Basil uh, used all of his family's fortune to feed the poor by establishing and creating essentially the very first Christian food bank, an ancient version of a food bank that fed the people of the community. And then he went on to build the first Christian hospital and hospice. Hospital, hospice, hospitality. They all come from the same root Latin word. Hospitality heals when, when we understand it properly. Monks had long practiced hospitalities. The Benedictines are probably the most well-known for their hospitality in today's world. But even in the wilderness of the desert, and you think, well, why would they need to practice hospitality in the desert? Are there anybody in the desert? Well, listen to what this ancient traveler, Rufinus, said in, when he testified of encountering some people. Then we came to Nitria, the best known of all the monasteries of Egypt, about 40 miles from Alexandria. As we drew near to that place and they realized that foreign brethren were arriving, they poured out their cells like a swarm of bees and ran to meet us with delight and alacrity, many of them carrying containers of water and bread. When they had welcomed us, first of all, they led us with psalms into the church and then washed our feet and one by one dried them with the linen cloth they were girded with as if to wash away the fatigue of the journey. What can I say that would do justice to their humanity, their courtesy, and their love? Nowhere have I seen love flourish so greatly. Nowhere with such quick compassion, such eager hospitality. See, hospitality prevents the church from becoming a club, a members-only society. It is an ideal of an inclusive community. And the church had always acted as a community with its arms open. And they would attract people to their fellowship, not through their rigorous arguments and their convincing proof texts, but through a practical demonstration of God's love. And that is what the church has always been called to and always will. 
This radical hospitality then became a threat to the Roman Empire because when you are in control of an empire, you want to be in control of the distribution of resources. But the people of God from the bottom up had a different way of caring for one another, and so that was a great big threat. The African theologian Tertullian said this, it is, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. How was it that the early church could have such courage, such motivation, such desire to lay themselves down in acts of hospitality? Well, it becomes clear if you read down through the, our text from uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and you get down to chapter 11, this fascinating thing, or to verse 11, this fascinating thing happens. Listen to this. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary, bear with me for a second, by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then therefore go to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. What is he saying? Well, before the time of Jesus, when the people of God wanted and needed forgiveness for their sins, they would bring in animals to be sacrificed in the temple. And before it was the temple, it was a camp. And the priest would offer the sacrifice and, and the blood would be poured out of the animal and sins would be atoned for and they would be granted forgiveness. And then the animal would be taken outside the camp, outside the city gates and burned. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that in the same way as in the old system, the animals were sent outside the camp to be burned, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, whose blood was poured poured out for the sin, not of a particular person, but for the sin of the world, was sent outside the gate, outside the, the gates of the city of Jerusalem to be crucified. The one who ha is the full fullness of God who runs heaven has become an outsider so that we who are outsiders could be welcomed in by the ultimate host of the universe and not just as guests but as members of the family and not just as members of the family but as full citizens of heaven of a place not our own and so what a powerful thing this salvation was at the heart of hospitality. Um, it's the essence of hospitality is our salvation. And, and they could see it clearly. And just like generosity, we don't discern whether to extend hospitality to others from a place of scarcity or fear of the other. We, we extend hospitality to strangers out of that overwhelming sense of gratitude that we have been welcomed into the family of God. And how could we do anything else but to pour ourselves out so that others would feel welcome too? What if every faith community was like a swarm of bees running out to meet the displaced, the lost, the rejected, the unexpected strangers with the same delight and zeal and enthusiasm as the earliest Christians. I've been thinking a lot in the past few months and especially this past week, of course, about the immigration crisis along our, 
a nation's southern border? And what is the faithful Christian response to the threat of overcrowding in the United States as well as the violations of human rights and dignity along the border and the desperate need that is like a tidal wave on our nation's front porch? And I believe that the heart of the Christian response is not initially policy-related. I think to live in the space of arguing about policies is an adventure in missing the point for Christians. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he was giving them a demonstration. He was saying it's not good enough to sit comfortably in your homes and yell at each other about uh, immigration politics from your social media accounts. The Christian response is to care for those who have come into our land and to treat them as though they are citizens. When the politicians ship them off to Martha's Vineyard, it is the church's role to be there and to show up to provide care, which is exactly what the Episcopal Church did in Martha's Vineyard when uh, the migrants came. Um, And so uh, as we're engaged with that kind of work, And I think in particular of one of our key mission partners, Mark Adams, who works uh, full-time on behalf of the Presbyterian Church on our, our southern border, caring for migrants along the way. As people like Mark are engaged in that work and churches that support and come alongside Mark are engaged in that work, we can see then how various policies affect the real lives of human beings on the ground. And then out of that work and, and those perspectives, we can then advocate accordingly as citizens of this particular nation. We don't advocate based on headlines and no human touch. And that's why we serve at the rescue mission. That's why we participate with Catholic community services in St. Vincent de Paul and the food bank. That's why we send people to Kenya, Tanzania, elsewhere. One Sunday morning before worship at the church I used to serve uh, in Seattle, It was about an hour before church was starting. I was in my office and a a woman who is involved in leadership of the church arrived early and she came uh, came to my office and she was upset. She was anxious um, and and frustrated. And and she said, "Um, there's a homeless person in the parking lot. What is the church gonna do about this? And then she went on this kind of uh, a bit of a rant about how the church is, you know, complicit in most of the problems in the world and I don't disagree with her on many points and do you remember the crusades and, um, and, and all of this and kind of went on and on and how can we come to worship in our nice cars when there's a homeless person who's hungry in the parking lot and what, is, what are we going to do about that? And I said, well, did you invite him to church or, you know, give him something to eat? And she said, no, I didn't have anything. I'm just coming to church and I wasn't expecting this and da, da, da. And I said, here's $5. Go to the Starbucks across the street if you're willing and buy him a hot sandwich. Have him put it in a little bag, roll it up, and then, and then go to the gentleman and offer him the hot sandwich and invite him to come to church. And so she did that. And an hour later, I stood up to give the welcome. And there he was in the back of the church with four other people from the congregation sitting next to him, making him feel welcome, helping him by extending hospitality. Just the church being the church, the church being the church, showing both uh, in not only in, in our words, but in our actions, the hospitality of God. 
I'm gonna close with this story. Author Max Dupree uh, tells a story of his granddaughter Zoe, who was born prematurely, one pound, seven ounces, even smaller than you see in this stock photo. Um, the, you could take Max's wedding ring and put it all the way up her arm to her shoulder is how small she was. Her chances of surviving three days were less than 10%, and her tiny body was hooked up to all kinds of tubes in hopes of keeping her alive. But since Zoe's father had moved on and left the family, the wise neonatal nurse had some important words for Grandpa Max. She said to him, for the next several months, you are to come here to the hospital every single day to see Zoe. And when you come, I would like you to touch her body with your finger, to rub her arms, and to rub her legs and her body. And while you are caressing her with your finger, I would like for you to say to her over and over again how much you love her. Because what Zoe needs more than anything else is to be able to connect your voice with your touch. Your voice with your touch. This is the hospitality of God. The word of God, God's voice, became flesh, God's touch in Jesus Christ. And he was willingly cast out as an outsider, rejected, so that we could be welcomed in as part of the family. May we extend this same hospitality to others, angels unawares, with voice and touch. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your voice and your touch in Jesus Christ. May we live into our calling as we seek to extend hospitality to strangers. Thank you that you have turned us, strangers, into friends and not just friends, but part of your family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.